0: I want to thank you again for the uh, the board for inviting me to uh, fill in for Pastor Joel this week. I have had such a wonderful time uh, bringing this instruction from the book of Job to you. You've been so attentive and receptive. Um, I know you're gonna have Dr. Troxell next year, but I hope you will make sure that you get Pastor Joel back into the batting order sooner rather than later. Uh, he is a, a great teacher, uh, a very faithful pastor, and uh, he's got this magnificent southern accent even though he's been in Arizona for years, so you, you really want to have him back. Um, I mentioned earlier just you know the providences of God and, and bringing us together, and I was thinking back I think the first time... Well, let me back up from the beginning. Uh, I won't waste too much time because I have to be on time. You know, Mrs. Molker down there. <laughs> she who must be obeyed, right? <laughs> um, when I was in seminary, I had a wonderful um, Old Testament prof, uh, Old Palmer Robertson. Some of you know his books. Um did a great job on the Pentateuch. Then he was, I I didn't know it at the time, but like many professors, he was fairly early in his teaching career, and I think he was developing course material about one step ahead of the students. And uh, so the wisdom literature was classed with the Psalms kind of under the heading of biblical poetry, and he spent most of his time in that class on the Psalms and so when I finished my seminary education, the wisdom literature was kind of a, a gap. You know, dragons live here, but that's about all you know, and uh, and I didn't really miss it all that much. I mean, I'd read Proverbs just like most of you had, and so forth, but no real in-depth instruction or reflection, and. Within the first couple of years of my ministry in Sonora, I uh, traveled over to San Francisco to hear a series of lectures by Bruce Waltke, uh, who was then a professor at Regent. He later taught at Westminster for a while, and then uh, I think back to Regent. He's retired now, and and he was speaking on Proverbs. And in that connection, kind of introduced um, the wisdom literature, how it fits in Old Testament theology, and particularly in the canon, and that just so whetted my appetite for this material. You know, I guess every pastor kind of has a, uh, a favorite area of study they keep going back to, and uh, every time I get to go back into the wisdom literature for any reason, I just sort of feel like, oh wow, this is, this is I, I like it here. And so it was, it's just been a treat for me to reflect again on the book of Job. And then I remembered that the first time I spoke at Canyon Meadows, which was, I don't know what year, but Tammy was there, she said. So um, It was uh, I spoke on a kind of an introduction to the, the uh, biblical wisdom literature, uh, indebted very heavily to what I learned from Dr. Walkie. Uh, but, you know, you learn it and you pass it along and you... Footnote note where you need to. but uh, So I've kind of come full circle. Um, whether I ever speak to this crowd again at family camp, God only knows, but this is a nice place to finish up um, a ministry at, at family camp. Um, so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at, now you're, you're up to the page that we messed up because I messed up the outline and stuff. We're on the, the lecture about the Lord answering Job out of the whirlwind, but I'm going to speak a little bit about Elihu here. I I knew from previous experience, and it's a little less crunched uh, this year, uh, that in that last section, not this hour, but the next one, uh, we both have the attrition of people who have to go home early and then the pressure of getting uh, our stuff packed and so forth and so. I didn't want to leave the most important character's appearance for the rump session of the, uh, of the family camp audience. So I wanted to make sure we got that in first thing this morning. And then that last talk about Q&A and odds and ends. Um, if you have to skip that, it won't be the end of the world. But if you can come back and participate in that shortened second hour, I have a couple of other things we can kind of review. I think it would be great if you have any questions. And a few of you through the week have given me testimonies of your experience of God's grace in the midst of affliction. And if it's something fit for public consumption, that is no names that would be inappropriate to mention, perhaps you have a testimony that you would like to share. I know Orthodox Presbyterians don't do that very much, but, you know, there's always a first time. So... Um, We'll tackle this last section um, uh, and then, uh, and I might, if I need to, uh, I'll go past the appointed hour to finish that off. Then we'll have our break. Then if you come back. So if you've had a question and you haven't asked me uh, off the floor already, uh, feel free to do that. Otherwise, we'll pick up a, a couple of additional things. So before we... Go forward, let's pray. You are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You were there before the beginning, from everlasting to everlasting, as we heard at the prayer time this morning from Psalm 90. You are God. And what's more, you have been the dwelling place, the temple for your people throughout their generations. And we adore you and we thank you God that we worship the very same God that Job encounters um, up close and personal in these closing chapters of the book that bears his name and we pray though we will not have the theophany the visible appearance in the whirlwind we pray that your spirit that fullest manifestation of the presence of God in our hearts so far uh, will impact us with the majesty and the glory and the wonder so that, like Job, we will end up with nothing to say except to worship. And so bless us, Lord, as we work through some more Of these wonderful chapters I'm so aware of all that we can't say and can't don't have time to reflect on but I pray that what you have given me to give to these brothers and sisters will be good food and will feed our souls strengthen us in affliction or in preparation for times of suffering and affliction both for ourselves and then to be good and helpful friends and counselors to those around us who suffer And we will give all of the praise and the glory to you, our Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we reach the climax of the book when Yahweh appears to Job out of the storm. We read there in chapter 38, verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. But there's a setup for the appearance of Yahweh. We finished the great debate. Uh, Job has given his final summation. Now Job is finished making his case. He will have some other things to say in response to Yahweh, but he's he's finished with his friends. But but, uh, there is this additional character, Elihu, who appears out of nowhere, but not disconnected from what's happened so far. Now maybe you call him Elihu. I call him Elihu. I was telling uh, Pastor Gurrell yesterday, years ago, I heard a converted Jewish, a pastor who was a converted Jew call him Elihu, and that sounded pretty Jewish to me, and uh, I don't know whether it was right or not. So it might be a, you say potato, I say potato, uh, you say Italian, I say Italian, you say Toyota, I say Toyota, you know, one of those things. So if it, don't stumble over the pronunciation of the name. Now when we think about Elihu, we come to one of the, the major structural um, and interpretive issues in the book. That is, where does Elihu fit? Uh, does he fit at all? And I can't spend a lot of time on this, but this is one of those places, and, and I alluded to this earlier in our talks, where you'll have people with the same... I'm not talking about the critics who want to tear the Bible apart, but people with the same theological and hermeneutical assumptions that come to the book, and they may give you precisely opposite interpretations of a section or a verse. And so... As I said before, I'm giving you the best I know right now, uh, but on this question about where does Elihu fit, there's there's reason to perhaps wonder. So I'll, I'll give you some suggestions why I uh, conclude that he does fit and that he fits on God's side, not on the side of the other three friends, but um, it's open to uh, good faith debate among uh, sound biblical scholars and exegetes. But back to the critics, it is alleged by some that Elihu doesn't fit at all, that he's been inserted by some editor, and this editor is so clumsy that anybody with half a brain knows that Elihu doesn't fit. And so they dismiss him as having anything to do with the argument of the book, especially the original storyline. Other scholars, perhaps more sound in their approach, still believe that Elihu makes no significant contribution to the overall argument of the book. Mostly he's youthful enthusiasm, blow and bluster, but he never really delivers the goods. He says, listen to me, I will tell you what you ought to know, and he, Fails, he fumbles, and so there's nothing really to learn. He doesn't add anything. Uh, others sort of identify him as the mis- uh, along with the misguided counsel of the other uh, friends. I think, for canonical reasons, if for no other, we have to say Elihu fits. He's in there because the Holy Spirit wanted him to be in the story, and that means we're obliged to do our best to figure out just how. So he belongs, and I think he belongs on the side of God and not on the side of the friends. And I'm not going to develop these, but here are a few reasons why I think this is so. Structurally, Elihu's speeches stand apart from the great debate between Job and his three counselors and the section where he finally meets the Lord, and it's kind of a bridge between the two, a, a preparation, as we'll see, for what is coming when Yahweh appears in the, in the storm. Um, further, Job does not respond at all to Elihu's argument, though he had responded intensively to the presentations of his other three counselors. And usually silence in the book of Job is a literary device for indicating that you've been convicted, you have been refuted, and now there's nothing to say by way of response. A kind of literary capitulation, if you will. God does not identify Elihu as one of the friends when in chapter 42, verse 7, he rebukes the three counselors and commends them to Job's intercessory ministry. So Elihu in that sense is set apart from the debate uh, as is God himself. The speeches of Elihu are tied immediately to and in a sense segue into the appearance of Yahweh. Indeed, Elihu describes the storm out of which Yahweh eventually speaks to his servant Job. And there is a close correspondence between the substance of much of what Elihu presents and the questions that are later posed by Yahweh, the Lord God. Indeed, there are things that Elihu says that sound very, very similar to what the other friends said, But we've already noticed that those friends say a lot of things which are true, but they are incomplete or imbalanced and so forth. So we do find some points of contact between the argument of the three friends and what Elihu has to say. So you can take that for what it's worth, but I think there's good reason to interpret Elihu as the setup person, the opening act, if you will, for Yahweh's own appearance. Who was he? Well, we really don't know. He's identified there in chapter 32, verse 2, as the son of Barachel, the Buzzite, of the family of Ram. And uh, we know from Genesis 22 that uh, that uh, Buzz was a, a relative of Abraham. Um, that doesn't get us very far, but it sort of positions him, again, in that, in that ancient... Uh, patriarchal world, Um, Ram we know from Ruth, the book of Ruth, is an ancestor of David according to the genealogy that we have at the conclusion of that book. How does he fit circumstantially? Uh, It's certainly clear that he was an auditor for the great debate. Uh, One scholar suggests that maybe he was like the the secretary. If this was a a quasi-formal uh, meeting uh, a kind of a colloquy among philosophers and wise men and not simply a personal ministry to Job then maybe Elihu was the, the amanuensis who's kind of tracking and maybe taking notes. You know, David Winslow and I are serving on a GA visitation committee and uh, uh, he's a great note taker and clerk. Uh, I'm the chairman of the committee which he keeps reminding me of, and I keep reminding him he has to do all the work. And uh, and when we get to GA and we have to report, boy, I hope he's sitting in the chair right next to me, or I'm going to be lost in the sauce. So, being the moderator is no big deal. Being a good clerk, that's where the action is. So maybe Elihu, but in any case, he was there and he hasn't had anything to say until now. And again, he's provoked to speak by the apparent failure of Job's friends to convict him, convince him, and bring him to repentance. And so that's kind of how things start. So if you look at chapter 32, verse 2, we read, Then Elihu, um, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because... Job justified himself rather than God and he burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older, the three friends were older than he and when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men he burned with anger. So That's the provocation. Most of the time, it's not a good idea to speak out of anger. But that's what finally provokes Elihu to speak. He's angry with Job, as it says, because though Job has maintained his integrity throughout, and we have argued that... Job had good reason to maintain his innocence in terms of God punishing him for some terrible sin or crime that he was now hiding in a hypocritical way, and yet Elihu will say that Job is still at fault because in justifying himself, he is at least implicitly and more and more explicitly, he is accusing God so he's justifying himself at God's expense all right he burns with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God it's not the problem that he's defending himself and defending himself effectively but he acts as if God owes him something uh, you might compare these words with what Paul says in Romans 9 when he says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Job has implied that God has done something wrong. And we're reminded again that as fallen people, our root problem is that we want to be as God. And that includes the right to put God in the dock, as C.S. Lewis put it, and have him answer to us, and rather than we answering to him. And that's what Elihu uh, uh, sees in in Job. That pride, I mean, that's what we call it. You know, when we we call it pride, it's really autonomy. Uh, That was the word that Dr. Van Til used over and over again. A law unto yourself exchanging the role of the creature for the creator so that we demand that God explain himself to us. So on the horizontal level, for Job to defend himself against his accusers, appropriate. But to let that bleed over then into making God just one more of his accusers and demanding that God answer him, that's the problem that is here identified Job is not guilty as charged by his friends, but in Elihu's eyes, he's still guilty and needs to be brought to conviction. He needs to be broken before God and brought to a sincere repentance before God. There is, and we ought to just note this in passing, there's a difference A dangerous difference between vindicating yourself and letting God vindicate you? The worst thing that could happen was that Job would successfully defend himself against his human accusers and for God not to speak and for Job to assume then that he had silenced God as well as his earthly accusers. Now, this is just something I throw out for you to think about, but you know, when you are called upon to defend yourself, and there are times when we have to do that from slander, from misinterpretation, maybe from a, a formal accusation. Years ago, I got accused, uh, sued for uh, mal, uh, ministerial malpractice because of testimony that I'd given in a, in a divorce case. Um So when you have to defend yourself, you want to make a good case. Although, you know, sometimes we don't need to defend ourselves. We can just let it go. But the danger is that we are not deferring to God's judgment as we defend ourselves. And then if you're successful, that can feed the pride and the autonomy rather than bring about that humility and brokenness that I think Job and all of us really need. Unrepentance before men is sometimes legitimate and warranted. Unrepentance before God is never a helpful posture. Humble, broken, trusting in God's grace, that's where we need to come. To this point in the book, Job has not seen or understood the Lord's deeper, gracious purpose that we have been trying to highlight, but soon he will. So that's Elihu's view of Job. Then, with regard to the friends, Elihu is angry because they have failed to speak God's wisdom to Job in a persuasive way. According to Elihu, ancient wise men should have spoken the wisdom of God, but in his judgment they have not. Therefore, even though he is young, he must take his turn. Verse 6, I am young in years, and you are aged, Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it is the Spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. And it's worth noting that verse 8, it's Elihu that draws attention to the role, I think, of the Holy Spirit, the breath of the Almighty. It is the ministry of the Spirit, not simply years or lots of experience, but the Spirit applying the Word that gives any one of us, young or old, genuine wisdom. Now, there's not a lot in the Old Testament about the ministry of the Spirit, but one of those, this is one of those little pieces of that larger puzzle, and it's completely consistent with what we learn in the New Testament. After the Messiah comes, is glorified and gives the Spirit. It's the Spirit that leads us into truth and understanding, able to live it and to convey it to others. So we have a little glimpse, a a little melody about the work of the Spirit, and then then we move on. Well, let's cut to the chase. I've already spent more time on this than I intended to, given our compressed uh, schedule. What does Elihu want to bring to bear upon Job. First of all, he wants to make clear that both the righteous and the wicked suffer under the providential hand of God. Remember, the three friends basically saw if you're righteous, you will prosper. If you're wicked, you will be punished. End of story. Job keeps offering a counter-argument, and Elihu wants to say in that level, you're both right. The wicked suffer but the righteous suffer as well. And that's what has to be grappled with. And Job's case in a sense is exhibit A for that reality. But there's more going on here than simple retribution. That's true, but it's not a complete answer to the challenge. And it's not just that the world is broken. Again, that's true. But it's that God has a very specific personal purpose in the life of the saint for the suffering that he brings into their life. Yes, everybody would suffer because the world is a veil of triers. the The world is broken, but it's more than that. There's a special purpose for Job and for every faithful, righteous sufferer. And that is to glorify God by becoming more mature and being strengthened in our faith and the life of faith. Again, Jesus hints at this, well, more than hints at it, when he's asked in John 9 about the man that was born blind from birth. And and remember, the disciples asked him, was it because he sinned or his parents sinned that this man was born blind? That's exactly the point. Blindness from birth must be an expression of God's retribution. So. Who sinned, the parents or the children? And you know that Jesus replied by saying, Neither this man nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And immediately the works of God are displayed in the healing of this man by the Lord Jesus, and and then by that man's testimony that Jesus indeed is the promised Messiah. The purpose for suffering in the life of the covenant-keeping person, we will call him the, the saint, is chastening. And I've said this already a number of times, so we're we're still on that same theme. And Ellie, who is trying to highlight it, uh, sanctification, growth in grace, not punishment, not retribution. Suffering itself doesn't sanctify. God sanctifies, and experience will be often the occasion where that sanctification process takes place. In chapter 37, um, Elihu points up God's multi-purpose providences. Look at verse 11 and following just briefly. He, the Lord, loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. So there you have the kind of ambiguity in interpreting experience. It could be an expression of love and kindness. It could be an expression of correction Or it may be just to water the crops. We don't know. And I was thinking in in light of that verse, you know, it's kind of in California. Most of the time, rain is a blessing, except when there's too much of it. Or it might be a blessing to you in one place, but if you live in a forest fire zone and you're faced with mudslides, the very same experience in the same... Just to say again, we we often think we're so confident about what God is doing in a particular event, but there are multiple layers which are not a problem for God, but they're very difficult for us to parse out with precision and say, well, here's what the Lord is doing. Again, mystery, but mystery with a wise and holy purpose. What emerges from Elihu's speeches then is that God graciously uses suffering as a tool for humbling and correcting his saints. Yes, he can judge his enemies, but we're talking about what he's doing with his saints. It is for discipline that we endure these kinds of afflictions. It's God's love, his tough love in action Job's experiences are designed to shake him free on an even deeper level from the indwelling sin of pride and self-sufficiency. There's also an interesting passage in chapter 33, this matter of God providing a messenger, a mediating angel. 33, 23. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to man what is right for him. And he is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become flesh with, fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what is what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things, twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lightened with the light of life. A mediator. Someone who will convey the truth of God's ways to the sufferer and through whom the sufferer can be restored to God. Now, I don't need to spin this out. This is a place where if we had more hours to spend, we could plumb the depths here. But here's Elihu's gospel. Language of pardon and acceptance and restoration to the favor of God. All of those wonderful realities that come to their fullness in the person and work of our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and here again, it's, it's just a glimpse, and, and then it's gone again. Intimations. Elihu is, in that sense, God's messenger but he's pointing forward to the intercessor, the mediator, the messenger, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the Elihu section concludes in verses, uh, in chapters 36 and 37 with a description of the majesty and the power of El Shaddai in the figure of a storm, but then segueing into the actual appearance of God out of, the, uh, out of the whirlwind. And again, is this all a literary device? Is this a, a physical uh, theophany for Job? Um, we, there's differences of opinion about that as well. But just listen to some of this. I feel bad shortchanging so much of this wonderful poetry. Chapter 36, 26. "'Behold, God is great, and we know him not. "'The number of his years is unsearchable, "'for he draws up the drops of water. "'They distill his mist in rain, "'which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. "'Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, "'the thunderings of his pavilion? "'Behold, he scatters his lightning about him "'and covers the roots of the sea.' For by these he judges peoples and gives food in abundance. He covers his hand with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that, uh, that he rises. Again, if you've ever been out, particularly if you get out in the maybe in the vastness of the desert southwest and you see a summer storm come up suddenly, I mean, it's quite a show. Um, we actually had that experience one year in the Czech Republic. It was the night before Sherry and I were supposed to fly out, and we were uh, staying with some people near the airport to catch our plane, and boy, those clouds started coming in. And uh, by the time it was over, the thunder was sitting right over our bedroom, and it was just shaking everything. It It was impressive. Sorry. Get carried away. All right, now chapter 37, and we'll pick it up in 21. And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own accents. Earlier on, a storm has been described as the outer fringes of God's work. So here Elihu is introducing Job and us, if you will, to the appearance of the Almighty. Job wanted God to show up, and now God has granted his request. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, But there's not an answer, is there? There's a question. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dress for action like a man? I will question you, and you make it known to me. Job wants answers from Yahweh, but all he's going to get, are more questions, and they're going to be unanswerable questions. And that's what's going to finally silence Job, break him, humble him, and bring him to that repentance, which has been the goal of his friends, at least on some level, and Elihu, and now it's going to happen, but not by God meekly explaining himself to the autonomous creature who demands answers. Again, let me just pause here, and I'm thinking about you young people, when you're you know you're in the university, you've got a lot of skeptics around you, whether they're peers, classmates, or teachers. And they take that posture, you know, If you're going to believe in God, he better explain himself to you in a pretty satisfactory way. Otherwise, you have no business at all believing in this God. They are so arrogant, so proud, so self-sufficient. And when you're in a world like that where everybody's passing judgment on God and you think or you're made to think you're some kind of a Sunday school idiot for believing in this God and clinging to this God, maybe if your mind will just come back to this storm and this God, it'll steal your backbone for courage to stand against that kind of skepticism and that kind of ridicule. You may not say it to their face, but you can think in your heart, you just wait when you stand before this God in judgment and you spout your proud and arrogant ridicule and criticism. That will be a day of terror that you can't even conceive of. God doesn't owe us answers, and he may not give us answers, but in the end, we don't need them because we know this God. And He has been gracious to us. In a sense, although it's not made explicit, Yahweh is concurring with Elihu's evaluation of Job's words. They are darkened. They are without knowledge or insight. So we have this series of rhetorical questions I don't think the Lord really expects. Job to answer any one of them, but they draw Job's attention in an even clearer and more convincing way than Elihu's speeches, and certainly far more effectively than his friends had, to the evidence of the majesty and the power of the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, the governor and judge of all things human. And the effect of these questions is... Elenctic, remember I used that word the other day. They bring conviction. That's what they're designed to do and they are effective. To bring Job to a humble contrition before the face of his creator for his remaining unbelief and presumption. And so he begins to ask these questions. And again, we won't read the whole section, but I, I can't not read Some of it, let me just pick it up in verse 4 of 38 as he begins to ask questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? Or where was its base sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when, it made, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. And then a couple of chapters later, um, Chapter 40, verse 7. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder like a voice, with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase Him. And then he goes on to talk about Behemoth and Leviathan and so forth. The challenge is, okay, Job, you want to act like God? Let's see you be God. Think like God. Demonstrate the power of God. And, of course, Job can't do it. He's really bludgeoned by these questions, uh, unanswerable questions. And he begins to realize that he is in serious trouble. Verse 4 of chapter 40, Behold, I am of small account. So he finally speaks... And this is what he has to say. No more defending himself anymore. I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So with a few questions, God accomplishes what no human agency ever could, whether experience or the words of men, even the partially true words of men, now it's not answers, but it's God that Job comes to see. And that leads him to that repentance and confession. So here's Job who fears God. And the fear of the Lord involves humility. And he needs to learn more humility It involves love. Healing needs to learn more love. It involves trust and dependency, but he needs more. That's what's going on. Again, I hope your experience says the amen to this as you have grown and then maybe you even reach a kind of self-satisfaction. Yeah, i got this Christian life wired pretty well. I, I can do this. And then... You're stretched. And maybe it's an agonizing stretch. And then you learn some more. Okay, now I've got it. It's kind of like school school, right? Just about the time you get the hang of something, then they give you something more that you have to learn. And God does that. So, so this is not primarily Job really failing a lot and being corrected. But it's a man that God approves of who is now being made. And so... As I said at the beginning, from a noble saint, Job adopts the posture of a needy, dependent sinner. And that's what all of us need as we face our affliction. So Job is ready to humble himself, and we finally get those words in chapter 42. Job answered the Lord and said, this is verse 1, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? So there he's quoting Yahweh's question. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And he says in response, Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. There's no self-defensive cockiness In Job anymore he admits he was way out of his depth even when he was rightly defending himself against the inadequate charges of his friends then he quotes again verse 4 from the Lord's question here or the Lord's statement here and I will speak I will question you and you make it known to me and then this confession which I cited earlier I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear But now my eyes see you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Perhaps no more eloquent confession in all of the Bible. And it's premised on the growth from a knowledge of God which is like at a distance. I had heard of you and then a new personal immediacy in the presence of God. That's how Job grows through the book, vindicated by God before Satan and his neighbors, but stretched and matured by God through the process of this experience. God's appearance set up by Elihu's words of explanation and correction And against the background of Job's sufferings and his confrontation with his friends finally leads Job to that deep brokenness and humility before God, which is the heart of the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord. It's the posture, if you will, of true wisdom that was mentioned in chapter 28. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Uh, But it makes me think of the words of Agur that are recorded at the end of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 30. How does a truly wise person speak? Do they speak about their wisdom and their understanding and how much they know and, and can teach others? Or do they face the reality of how little they know? Agur says... Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in His fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is His name and what is His Son's name? Surely you know. And he concludes, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. The fear of the Lord, like saving faith, and I really believe that that phrase, fear of the Lord, is the Old Testament uh, statement of what we think about when we think about saving faith. It's a mixture of understanding and love and trust and dependency and faithfulness and obedience. I mean, it's a, it's a package deal, both in its old covenant form and its new covenant form. But in neither form is it a static possession. You know, I have faith, I put it in my pocket, I take it with me. I have the fear of the Lord, I put it in my shirt, I take it with me. No, it's a, it's a personal relationship What Micah calls walking humbly with your God every moment of every day. R.C. Sproul liked to talk about living before the face of God, but he liked it in Latin, right? Coram Deo. Um, I like English myself. Living in the conscious presence of God. It's communion with the living God in a dynamic, growing, maturing experience. The kids singing last night about living the Christian life as an adventure. You know, hold on to your hats, folks. We're gonna live for God. Whoa! How sedate our Christian living is. You know, chill, keep it reasonable, don't get too enthusiastic. Or as Jesus put it, it's abiding in him. The vine Uh, The branches abiding in the vine and the vine feeding and fueling the branches. It's confrontation, ultimately, with the majestic, holy presence of God. That's what brings wisdom. It's not usually the law. We often talk about, you know, you have to be confronted by the law and the law will convict you. But if we don't see the majesty of God and the personalism of the law, then a bunch of commands aren't going to bring us to conviction. But when we see the majesty of God, and I think when we see it in His mercy, that's what breaks our heart. It's Christ on the cross. That's where you see what you need to see in order to love this God. And again, it's not all of the apologetic arguments that we can come up with, all of the debates that we can win. It's not our position on creation or our position on this or the other thing. You know, it all boils down to knowing God. As Packer said, knowing God. But knowing Him a little bit more deeply every single day. And when the world falls apart, as it does in times of terrible affliction, to know that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He's promised that he will not. We need to remember it, and then, as Paul says, we comfort others with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. Well, eventually then comes the restoration, and this is part of that bracketing story. So Job is left humbled in the presence of God, God does not say, okay, now I'm going to reverse everything. Circumstances just change on a human level. But we are to conclude, and certainly Job would have concluded, that the trial is over. The test has been finished, and God's purposes have been realized. Satan has been refuted and banished. He's gone. He's not there anymore to accuse either Job or the Lord himself, and God gives back to Job many of the material and family blessings that had been taken away. And so Job has, uh, uh, verse 12, The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, He had also seven sons and three daughters. Somebody asked me earlier in the week, did he have the same wife? (laughs) I don't know. And he called the name of his first daughter and so on and so forth. Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. So he is restored outwardly having been restored inwardly through his confrontation with the Lord. But then he's got a job to do for these very friends that were accusing him so intensely. And God rebukes them and sends them to Job to perform an act of intercession, to pray for them. Verse 9, So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Neamathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And so Job was restored and his friends as well through the intercession. So that final section signals the conclusion of this incident of loving, gracious discipline which God brings upon his already faithful and covenant-keeping son Job. Now, just a a word about, again, our vantage point from the New Covenant. This God that has been silent, challenged, and now appears and humbles Job is the God who has revealed himself fully and finally in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who made light shine in the darkness, has caused the light of the glory of God to shine upon us in the face of Christ. Jesus is the incarnate God, and more than that, He is the suffering God. Jesus is the one who is greater than Job, even as He is greater than Solomon a mediator greater than Elihu. Indeed, all of the righteous sufferers, we've been talking about them in the evenings, from Abel and Joseph on throughout redemptive history, anticipate the coming of Jesus the Messiah, who is the suffering servant of the Lord. It's interesting, when we read Isaiah 53, verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And I mentioned this the other day. That's a fitting description of Job as well. But to the suffering of Job is added a very new feature in the suffering of Jesus. And that's the idea of representative, substitution, atonement, and forgiveness. You see, we're not forgiven and restored on the basis of our repentance. We've been talking about Job being brought to repentance, but we could never ever repent enough or deeply enough to atone for our sins. So in the whole process of restoration, there must be redemption. And that redemption now comes to the four in Jesus Christ. So you continue to read in Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon, the ch- uh, upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Important, uh, as important as repentance is, it is not to be rested in as the ground of our justification, our forgiveness and acceptance with God, the restoration of our relationship with Him. There must be the redemptive suffering and death, and the resurrection and glorification of our Lord Jesus as he fulfills that mediatorial office about which Elihu gave us a quick glimpse. So we have in Christ the atoning sacrifice, but also just to remind you, we have also in Christ that sympathetic high priest. Because he is a sufferer like Job, he is able to help us in our times of suffering. He is not untouched by the things that wound us. He, is, he has his own experience of our weakness, and therefore he is able to help us. I close with the words of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. You know them. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by that new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold fast. He will hold us fast. Let us hold fast to him hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful let's pray what a joy and what a balm for our souls it is O Lord to walk through this book in the context of the whole scriptures and to see the realities with which Job had to wrestle, but to also see in Job our dear Savior, Jesus. All that He did for us that we could never do for ourselves, and all that He is doing in us by His powerful Spirit that brings us to that ever-deepening understanding of you, which is the fear of the Lord. And Lord, we know that Satan is our accuser, just as he was Job's accuser and has always been your accuser, God. And that in the last day, when you raise us from the dust in the likeness of Jesus' glorious body, you will vindicate us before Satan and men. Even as you have done, Job, we know that our Redeemer lives and that in the last day he will stand upon the earth and though worms destroy this body, yet in our flesh on that great day we will see him and we will be like him. Oh, Lord, how thankful we are. How deep your love for us. We worship you. And we praise you. And we do ask God as we continue to endure affliction like some here present are right now, or as we were reminded when we get back to our homes, our families, our jobs, our churches, there may be trials, there will be trials awaiting us that we can go strengthen through these few days, these few hours together with one another encouraging and helping one another, even as we have been fed by your word. Lord, we praise you. It all comes from you, and we are grateful. We come to you through the mediation of our dear Savior Jesus, in in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.